0: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
1: Hey, everybody. It's T with Abduction Enigma podcast. So here's a little bonus episode for you guys. You guys know how I feel about the 1995 alien abduction conference held at MIT. I like to get the history of alien abductions out there. And I found this one on the faded disc tapes again. This is Dr. David Pritchard, TBD Brian, and John Carpenter. And I think you guys will really enjoy this. Alright, let's get it.
2: Dr. David Pritchard is a scientist at MIT in Cambridge and co-chair of the Abduction Study Conference held at MIT. He joins us from WBUR in Boston. Welcome to the program. How do you do, right. How are you? T.B. Bryan is a journalist in Guilford, Connecticut, and author of Close Encounters of the Fourth Kind, Alien Abduction, UFOs, and the Conference at MIT, published by Knopf. And he's here with me in the studio this afternoon. Welcome to the program.
0: Nice to be here, and hello, Dave.
2: Hi, Gordon. Also, John Carpenter is with us. John Carpenter is a hypnotherapist and licensed clinical social worker in Springfield, Missouri, and he joins us by phone from his office. Welcome to the program.
3: Good afternoon, gentlemen.
2: Good afternoon to you. Let me begin by asking you, David Pritchard, um, why did you help organize this conference with John, Matt?
4: Probably it was even more my idea than his, but basically I had gotten interested in this phenomenon, namely the people making these uh, crazy bizarre, I guess would be better word, reports, and I became uh, aware of a lot of the research that had been done, much of it not published, uh, about this phenomenon, and I decided to run a, a conference in which people could come and report their research, and then other people could discuss it, uh, criticize it, ask questions about it, and that's a scientific conference, and so that's what we did. And so people came and uh, read scientific papers and present made presentations? Yes. Yes. Uh, actually, we had 100 presentations. Uh, some, several, of the present several people made uh, a, a couple of presentations because we had a very uh, careful overview of the phenomenon that was established by the committee of, of sort of experts in this area, and then the people put their various presentations on this outline so the whole thing would be coherent. Because one of the things we were really trying to do was to make a comprehensible overview of this, the proceedings, which is actually published now It's a book called Alien Discussion and to make that kind of a working collection of the research in this field. Now, you're a world-class,
2: tenured, well-respected scientist. Around uh, uh, People know you around the world. You must have received a lot of heat for deciding to do this. Um, or or laughing or skepticism or something. What, what drove you to decide, that, as a scientist, that you would like to help sponsor this? Well,
4: you know, really, uh, it's... What we call uh, this is uh, curiosity-driven or basic research. I I just thought this was interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, Now I'll tell you some of the reasons that I think that I'm maybe predisposed to think that. First of all, I think it's clear that uh, the existence of other intelligent life uh, in the universe is a dynamic scientific issue. I mean, if we could discover that kind of uh, life, it would be Copernicus' revolutions, part two, and I guess if they were here, part three. Right. Um, and in
2: fact, we, as
4: we as a culture, believe there is other life, and scientists have set up searches, search for extraterrestrial life out there. Exactly. But the majority of scientists uh, feel, uh, and this view was presented at the conference by uh, Paul Horowitz, who's one of the leaders of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence using radio. They think it's going to be too expensive to come here uh, for the aliens to come here. But I hold with the minority of scientific uh, community that advanced uh, highly technical uh, extraterrestrial civilizations could indeed send uh, unmanned, maybe call them, unaliened probes here. And uh, in fact, there's been a conference recently, uh, last fall, at NYU. I didn't have anything to do with it, but that was for people who wanted to get together and figure out how humans could send probes to the nearest star systems to explore any planets that were there. So I think it's just a matter of time, maybe a 1,000 years, maybe a 100,000 years, but technology is rolling on, and it's going to get easier and cheaper to send some sort of small, intelligent thing to elsewhere in the universe. Mm-hmm. Now, Courtney Bryan, you were, you're you're not a UFO writer. You're a very
2: well-known writer, but you've never written about
4: UFOs. Not until
0: now. No. Well, what got
2: you interested
0: in this? I think probably very much what got Dave Petra interested in it. Uh, to me, this is the idea that serious people like Dave Pritchard and John Mack are uh, serious credentials, we're holding a serious conference at a serious scientific institution on a subject which I thought was similar to Mickey Mouse, was news. So I went up there as a uh, commissioned by the New Yorker to cover the conference, and I found it as, as fascinating as, as uh, all of us have, that you do get sucked into it. It's, it's an intriguing subject, and a great, one of the great mysteries.
2: Did, did you find your beliefs changing about the issue back and forth or as you were up there?
0: I think, I, I think it's like quicksand. The, the more time I spent at the conference, the more vulnerable I was, and I found uh, that my skepticism was shifting mm. so that I was getting less and less skeptical about phenomenon and becoming more and more skeptical about my previous closed mind.
2: Mm. In fact, reading your book and reading uh, also reading the proceedings that uh, uh, David Pritchard has published, uh, really, it, 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 I I... I describe it as very disturbing. It's one of the most disturbing books I have have ever read. I've read a lot of science books and a lot of philosophy. And you come away because it really clicks with the the evidence itself. Hearing people say, hearing the book talk about that these are not crazy people for the most part, that they have past psychological past, that they are not nuts, talk with the utmost sincerity about what has happened to them, really challenges your thoughts about what the truth is.
0: Well, so I think, as John Mack had, had said when, when I interviewed him, he said uh, that the most single powerful thing for him was that the were people, otherwise quite ordinary, unremarkable, reporting with full sincerity and in the most authentic way these extraordinary experiences, which they didn't want to believe were true. So really it was the abductees as much as, as the scientists who were convincing to me.
2: Uh, John Carpenter, as a uh clinical social worker and hypnotherapist, you have, I understand it, talked to 100 or more people claiming to be abducted. Is that correct?
3: Oh, yes. Um, Probably I've talked to 200 and worked with about 130 uh, with uh, clinical hypnosis.
2: And do you give them a battery of psychological tests to make sure that they are, they have their head on straight?
3: Well, I have several screening tools, and if I feel like I I need to do some psychological testing. I will, but as everyone has stated thus far, these people come across quite normal, incredible and basically they're as confused as we are about what's going on, what's happening to them.
2: So then they, they come to a, they come for help, not because they, uh, they like the experience of, of communing with aliens and want to do it again, but because they don't like it. Well,
3: I've never had anyone yet who wanted this experience. Uh, they may adapt and grow to, I guess, accept it over time, but certainly in the beginning, nobody comes wanting it or desiring it. And,
2: and, it, and according to the books and the proceedings, it appears that these people want to be told that they're nuts, because if they're told they're crazy, there's a magic pill that they could be given, they could be put away, they'll be cured, and they won't come back having these same feelings again. But, well,
3: exactly. And they're
2: not, and they're, and, They're told just the opposite, that they're not crazy.
3: Yes, and uh, that does bother them to some extent because crazy is more acceptable at this point.
2: (laughs) So then what do you do for these people?
3: Well, what we try to do is, first of all, because these experiences have been, in essence, locked inside of them, uh, either suppressed, repressed, or hypnotically suggested to not be remembered, as they recall them, it's as if they're recalling something that has been forgotten or a part of them all along. Um, this, as with any repressed material, feels better as it comes up and they're able to um, reintegrate it back into their, their lives. Now the problem is it's, it's such a wild thing to uh, become aware of that that does leave them in need of support we immediately put them in touch with others who have had the experience, um, not to share intricate de- details, but to just offer support and understanding. And eventually then uh, they uh, usually grow and change and develop what we all have come to know as a broader view of our own universe. As TD, uh, <laughs> uh Bryan said, you know, it's, it's something that just opens your mind up and then you begin to uh, question your former way of looking at things. Uh,
2: one of the most fascinating parts about the tales being told by the abductees is that they are so similar. And they describe, and I remember reading, uh, reading in your book, uh, saying that, well, one of the great criticisms of of the research here is that this could all be coincidental and that there are so many people could be just randomly talking about the same kind of event, but it doesn't appear to happen in a way, does it? They, they all talk about same-looking alien, same type of experience of abduction, same kind of spaceship.
0: Yet same scenario, same the same scenario, same sequence of events, the same tables, the same interior.
2: Now, as, as uh, uh, John Carpenter, why cannot this be coincidence? Why is not it just something, you know, if you have a couple of hundred million people in a population, that maybe a few thousand of them are going to have this sort of... Similar type
3: of experience. Well, there's there's too many reasons to go into on the air here. Uh, it would take another hour just to talk about imagination, fantasy, and expectation. But uh, in in general, um, imagination just doesn't work this way. We had a, a classroom of thirty children draw an alien. None of them drew anything alike, and none of them even drew a little gray creature. Um, Instead, they came up with what you would expect, 30 wonderfully creative, imaginative drawings.
2: Mm. Uh, Dr. Pritchard, of course, what the mainstream scientific community will say with good reason is if we're being visited by aliens, where is the hard
4: physical evidence for it? And how do you answer that? Well, uh, I have to say that I've looked, and I haven't found any. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've looked in, uh, well, I've, kind of talked to the investigators and said, you know, when you get a really solid looking piece of physical evidence, I might be interested in investigating it. And uh, I spent a great deal of effort uh, uh, investigating an artifact that uh, an experiencer alleged was a, an implant. And if you read the standard scenario, you'll find that implants are often put. Uh, in the head or in uh, in the genitals and was in the latter place. And uh, so he had had what I considered an artifact with an excellent pedigree. Namely, he had uh, evidence that he had been talking about being abducted by aliens even before the Betty and Barney Hill case was published. Uh, He had uh, an eight-year-old note from a doctor that he examined this thing underneath his skin and said, well, leave it there. But it sort of told how, how, uh, how big it was. He had a description of seeing a conscious, uh, not hypnotically recovered, uh, very very powerful memory of, of the scenario under which this was implanted in him. And he had a description of the article artifact before it was put in him. So when he finally met, sort of dislodged it from his skin and brought it to me, and it conformed. uh, it had the little wires that he talked about It had what I call appendages, Uh, I took it on and analyzed it carefully. And the result of all that analysis was that it is uh, human-damaged tissue, you know, white cells and other things that flood to a site where maybe you get an ingrown hair or some insult to the skin. And in addition to that, uh, it had captured a lot of clear cotton fibers, which of course could have come from his underwear. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I came up with what's likely a very prosaic explanation for this uh, artifact. And similarly, when I uh, took some MRIs, of uh, alleged MRIs of uh, head uh, implants, and a couple that were presented at the conference to a local uh, radiologist for a second opinion, he said, well, you know, this one and that one are artifacts of the process. This is one of the confusions. These people will sometimes be told by the doctor, well, that's an artifact, and they think, oh, that's an alien artifact. And the doctor means, well, you know, in MRI, you don't get a picture. You reconstruct it from some sort of frequency domain scan, mm-hmm. and there can be artifacts of that reconstruction process. And so that's one of them. Or he would point out that another one, well, yes, there is something there, but that looks like the scarring you get uh, in, in the nasal passages due to uh, just breathing too much dry air in winter. Uh, so there was no alien artifact, no smoking gun. And in my experience, all uh, all of the plain physical uh, artifact that I have examined or that I have heard examined carefully, there has been either no explanation that it's anything unusual, or even in the case of uh, Richard Price, uh, alleged implant, a more prosaic uh, explanation. I, I will say there is a tiny bit of evidence, and John Carpenter was uh, involved in that, for people who had diseases uh, that, or, or medical conditions that cleared up mysteriously and that they attributed to uh, alien healing. But there's no hard physical evidence, absolutely not. Do you argue then that this whole thing is a bunch of nonsense? Um, no, I, uh, I don't argue that. What I argue is, uh, you know, you're just going. If you if you think of the whole problem, uh, you're going to be able to catch aliens that are clumsy that leave around uh, obvious, you know, uh, pieces of string of alien string or alien machinery, and. Uh, if you do a certain level of investigation you're only going to find ones that are clumsier than a certain amount and we've just we've gone to a certain level it, I haven't invested very much time because I can't do this with my regular money or time I do this in my spare time and uh, you you I have I've done a quick scan and I haven't found anything but uh, doesn't say if you did a more careful examination you
0: wouldn't find something there and there was I think horrorism At the conference, he said the the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence.
2: Right. Uh, Yeah. Uh, But you're never going to get anybody to spend any real money, any kinds of money, on um, actually trying to find any hard evidence here.
4: Uh, You're not getting private people. You're not going to be able to convince
0: NSF to do it. (laughs) Let me say something. With my book that has just come out, I've gone around the country talking about the subject. And what has amazed me is how open people are all the way across. I mean, from Toronto, if I can consider Toronto part of our country for the moment, as far as, uh, you know, Seattle, San Francisco, East, Boston, things like that. All over the country, people believe something is going on. Uh, Scripps Howard did a poll two weeks ago, a month ago, saying 50% of the people in this country believe in UFOs, believe that there's a government conspiracy. Over and over again, when I was interviewed, the people interviewing me were far less skeptical about this phenomenon than I am. And I don't know why there isn't the kind of necessary funds to program, really, a scientific investigation. You, you point
2: it. out yourself in the book that uh, Jimmy Carter, before he was mm-hmm. elected, said that he had seen a UFO and was going to do something about it as he became president, looking into it, and then, voila, once he was president?
0: just disappeared in the National Security Agency. Just disappeared.
2: Yeah. So even the President himself can't get anything
0: yeah. going
5: on there. Uh,
2: John Carpenter, do you have any estimate of how many people nationally, internationally claim to be abducted?
3: Well, um...
2: How, how widespread is this phenomenon?
3: It's, it's easy for me to say thousands because we already have several thousand cases documented. Uh, I could easily project that it's millions because there's so many people who have mentioned they've had contact for stories that haven't officially been researched, and yet they come across in the same genuine fashion. Um, I think you have to remember the reporting phenomenon as well. Who feels comfortable reporting? What country allows such discussions? Russia didn't for the longest time. Now that it's more open, we're getting many more reports out of there, which have just been that on initially for years. Mm -hmm.
2: All right, let's go to Daniel in San Antonio. Hi, Daniel.
3: Good afternoon. I was a uh, serious UFO investigator in the 70s and and 80s. I worked with Dr. William K. Hartman in analyzing the photographs for the Colorado study for the Air Force. I worked with Dr. James McDonald at the University of Arizona on his studies of radar uh, analysis of uh, naval cases and so on. And I was the first as far as I know only PhD level full-time research was hired to do UFO research as my profession in the mid 70s my experience is that what we're dealing with here is a spiritual encounter not a uh, not an alien encounter because there's a spiritual component to every one of these uh, encounters
4: that is the person always comes away with a message of some kind an alteration of their world view and their alteration of the world view
5: is an anti-biblical viewpoint, and it's always uh, the same. It's very parallel to, as Mrs. Pearl Laurentin used to say, it's an
4: occult phenomenon.
2: But isn't but isn't the actual abduction scenario itself very biblical? The fiery chariot chariot coming out of the sky, the the fire from the
5: sky, the bright light, that sort of thing. Well, when the, when, when the, our enemy, Satan, endeavors to do a spiritual encounter, he always tries to replicate
2: the things of God. Mm-hmm. Let me get a, a reply from John Carpenter.
3: Well, first of all, in my 130 cases, they don't all come away with a spiritual message. In fact, what I've found is a wide range of reactions. Some feel victimized, some feel negative, uh, some do have a spiritual reaction, but it's not a case of always, and certainly... Out of 130 cases, I probably have about five or six that have any kind of a detailed spiritual feeling. Um, and also, i just like to throw in that cases like Roswell and other documented uh, crashes of UFOs where you have know, bodies and nuts and bolts type stuff, kind of makes me suspect that, sure, it can have a spiritual component, but it's kind of difficult to think it's entirely spiritual.
2: All right, Daniel. Thanks for calling. In fact, the uh, Roswell autopsy pictures have been making the rounds, and I was reading on a, it, I was reading on an internet page, a UFO internet page, which claimed to be I take no sides on it, by a ufologist who said that those autopsies have done more to set back. They're so bad. They're so phony. So fake. If they've done more, head back the course of people who believe in UFOs than anything else. Make it look such a joke.
0: Well, certainly the body didn't yeah, appear like anything is. anybody has described at just, MIT. Just,
3: exactly. Exactly. It just does not look like uh, anything from our research, nor from the Roswell research itself. Yeah,
2: there's, no one really takes it very seriously. Let's go to Fred in Madison. Hi, Fred.
5: Something's happening out there, and I don't know what it is government documents that have been released to me and other Freedom of Information Act researchers show that contrary to public assertions, that the subject of UFOs is held at the highest level of security. And it's very suspicious to me that very few documents on the subject of abduction have been released. What should our public policy be on this? Uh, Who should we report to? In World War II, 50 years ago, uh, if we saw an unusual aircraft in the sky, it was very clear we would know exactly who to go to, who to report it to, and what would be done. Um, who do we now report sophisticated aerospacecraft violating our airspace to? Um, okay. Is this sort of a rhetorical question? Well, I guess it would be. Okay, well, abduction, like the rest of the UFO phenomena, has very important legal and public policy issues that we ignore in favor of tabloid-style talk. And I'd like, uh, I'd like to do a short follow-up after a comment. Uh, we'll see. Okay. We have a minute or two. Uh,
2: CDB?
0: Well, I was going to comment that simply if, if I were the secretary of the Air Force and I couldn't do anything more about defending our airspace than we're doing now, then I think the government policy is going to have to continue to defend that it's happening, you know, you, know, you know, to deny that it's happening.
5: Mm. Uh, a follow-up, Brad? Yeah. Uh, earlier it was said that there had been no traces uh, of uh, abductions, and I think that they ought to look into some radiation studies because there are some very good close encounter of the third kind cases that involve strong radiation that caused injury or even death to the to the human people who were there.
2: All right, Fred, thanks for calling. Let me ask you, John Carpenter, about the, the people who uh, claim to be abducted. Uh, are they really? They come to you in very painful are they in a painful situation that they have. Thought about this for years and years and years, and then suddenly something happens that they now have to see a therapist?
3: Well, I think uh, again, it's a reporting phenomenon. Uh, many of the people I've seen it happened to them 10, 15, 20, even 40 years ago, but they didn't know who to tell. And so, like many strange things that happen to people in their lives, they just kind of sit on it and always puzzle over it. Now that they understand, make a connection that uh, maybe they're missing hours of time and they're seeing the strange light, this guy might be related, uh, or their nightmares now make more sense, uh, they start to explore it and they have a better idea of who to explore it with professionally and sensibly.
0: Can I say something? Uh, That all this talk we've had about there being no hard evidence, we've got to consider that the abductees are evidence. And John Carpenter at MIT, I think, told the best story of a, of a double abduction in which two women crossing Kansas, and, and get John to talk about it. I mean, this, to me, was a, a thrilling
2: story. Well, John, you want to tell it to us? That?
3: Well, yeah, it's a, it's a long story, but in short, two women who knew very little to nothing about UFO research could care less. We're coming back from a workshop in uh, Colorado, traveling late at night, uh, having a good time, and... Luckily, they documented every step of the way what they were doing, and they had an hour left to go, and they saw a strange light in the sky before they got to their motel. Well, they pulled over to get a better look, and they were all excited, heart-pounding, thrilled uh, that they were seeing something very unusual. And then it was 100 feet from their car, shining down beams of light to the ground, and again, they're very excited, but the next thing they know, they're pulling out on the road and traveling on, and now they're tired, exhausted, and uh, just don't want to really talk to each other, which is a very strange transition in a few seconds. Well, it turns out that uh, it took them three hours to travel the one hour on the interstate, and that made no sense to them, and they were having nightmares and insomnia, and so I worked with both of them independently, and under hypnosis, despite my trick questions and trying to logical answers to them. They both came up independently with unbelievable tales being floated up to a craft in the sky going through the uh, procedure of uh, being uh, taken aboard the ship, one being examined and having something put up her nose, and the other one being forced to watch. And what was nice about this was I could compare the two independent stories that came out and find... 43 specific details matching between these accounts. And it goes well beyond chance, well beyond coincidence, well beyond their knowledge of the subject, and they didn't have any desire to be a part of it to start with.
2: Of course, uh, skeptics would say, well, you as a hypnotherapist have led the patients on, so of course they came up with the same story.
3: Well, I'll tell you something. I have deliberately been known for leading my subject on purpose to see if they can be led, to see if they are suggestible. If I lead them away from abduction data, I try to lead them towards sensible answers. For example, you know, we have learned that they often find themselves in a round room on an exam table. But I will say something like, well, you're in something, you're in some other place now. Uh, what do you see in any of the corners of the room that you're in, which is a normal question. And they look and look, and then they apologize, and they say, well, I'm sorry, I don't see any corners It appears to be a round room. That's the way I get a lot of information, leading them the wrong way, and they have to correct me with
0: their experience. I watched Bud Hopkins go through very detailed... Bud is another... uh, Yes, he's sort of the Amadon's breeze of the movement. He's the one who's been doing the longest investigations. But I watched him try to lead two of the women I wrote about in the book away. What... John Carpenter what's in the corner of the room. There aren't any corners in the room. What color hair do the beings have? They don't have hair. And they can't get them to break their story, no matter how hard they try.
4: I would like to confirm that. I've seen some of John's uh, uh, transcripts, and in fact, he does this fairly often. Um, I would also like to point out that uh, John is not the only one who has carefully researched these multiple uh, abduction experiences. I think there are... Probably now about half a dozen of them uh, that have been done. Uh, Richard Haynes is making a collection, and uh, uh,
0: uh, Dave Jacobs, don't we? Uh,
4: uh, anyway, their their point is this is one of the things that differentiates, in my mind, this phenomenon from uh, some of the other things, like, for instance, near-death experience. You know, you can you can show tremendous parallels, and we've had several. Discussions at the at the conference about social parallels, which basically are other uh, collective or similar social phenomena, like uh, satanic ritual abuse, that uh, seem to be happening to many people uh, in a very similar way, and yet we can't uh, verify objectively that it's happening. Uh, and uh, so, for instance, uh, with near-death experiences, they also have some occasionally a transformative aspect, but they have very similar details for what's going on. Um, But in the abduction case, you have to explain something that doesn't happen very much in these other ones, uh, and that is where you have several people who claim to have had experiences um, together. Sometimes even these people will be researched by independent investigators, and then will be introduced, and they will know each other. And difficult to account for this sort of thing with conventional explanation and you know it brings me back to one of my favorite quotes that
2: uh, you, you have in the forward of the front leaf of your book which I always use all the time which is the famous Sherlock Holmes quote which is when you have eliminated the impossible whatever remains however improbable must be the truth
5: <laughs>
2: and I like that it's very famous it was taken out written reading out of the cover in Arthur Conan Doyle's The Sign of Four and um this seems to be what's happened here, is that you, you know, no one has been able to come up with a, a, you know, a an explanation here that, that when you take away everything else, it stares you in the face, yet it flies in the face of everything we know scientifically about how the world works.
0: John Mack came up with the five basic dimensions of, of the abduction phenomenon, and all of us, and, and, and John Carpenter, Dave Pritchard, you, me, we all started as absolute skeptics about this and, and said it can't be true. Uh, Dave Pritchard is far more scientifically inclined than I am, and I think is quite a bit more rigorous about it not being true. But John Carpenter was carried into this, as I understand it, by what he has said, what he's written, kicking and screaming, looking for any other possible excuse for what these people are saying. That's right. But nothing fits as well as what the abductees are saying. And you've got the, the, the basic dimensions are, they're all saying the same story, basically. The same sequence of events, they describe the beings the same, what happens is the same, the medical procedures are the same.
2: And there's no, there are no folkloric type of things, uh, John, or any other oh, kind I'm of... I'm glad thing. you
3: mentioned that. Psychiatry. I'm really glad you mentioned that, because I've been looking into that even more. And what I've found intriguing is all the little stories of fairies and leprechauns and gnomes and sprites and all those little beings that so many countries have legends of. They used to borrow people for hours at a time. They used to walk through walls. They used to materialize out of thin air. And you really read some of the old stories, they're just like what people are reporting now. But they aren't going to call them aliens back then. They didn't have that language. They didn't
2: have that frame of reference. But it's very interesting.
4: There's another interesting... I wanted to interject something here. Uh, uh, When I mention this to colleagues, uh, I often get the response, well, gee, you don't want to do this unless you know all about, and then the word or phrase changes, but it can be fairies or gnomes or stigmata on the hands of religious believers to explain the scars that people have, for instance, or seances. uh, there is indeed a tremendous amount of of uh, similar kinds of experience or stories in in other cultures, in earlier historic times especially. And let's face it, none of that is really adequately explained. It isn't even probably adequately debunked from the point of view of the Psycop people because they weren't around there at the time to really investigate the story carefully. Um, my stick has always been, you know, here we have right now before us this phenomenon, uh, the phenomenon of uh, of alien abductions. That we also have an old hag phenomenon, in which people report very similar uh, hearing people walk down the hall and jump on their chest while they're asleep, paralyzed at night. Uh, I mean, I really think these things are interesting, but they're here and now. You know, we cannot go back and, and administer uh, personality inventory tests to Salem witches or their victims, but we can do this kind of research and other kinds of research uh, on the, the uh, people who report these phenomena today,
0: and I would like to see more people do that. And I, and I think also it's important to know that observers tend to see what their time and environment prepared them.
2: Just as a matter of point of information, your book is titled The Close Encounters of the Fourth Kind. Give me those four kinds of, of uh, encounters.
0: Sort of, of a lightning guide. Uh, yeah. in, the first, in the first time, say you were driving across the country at night, you look up in the sky and you see an object that is flying, that is mechanical, it's not the planet, Earth, and you know, it's obviously an unidentified flying object. Second kind, it may come close enough that you have some sort of electrical malfunction, your car stops, the headlights out. Third kind, it is close enough, either because it's landed or, or it's nearby, that you see it as occupied. And in the fourth kind, the occupants make contact with you. They take you from your terrestrial surroundings, where it's your car, your bedroom, you know and do unspeakable things.
2: One very interesting uh, phenomenon or occurrence happened that you mentioned in your book, and we were talking about this before, at the turn of the century, and it seems the technology of the spacecraft matches just one step ahead of the technology of that part of the century.
0: That's right. In 1895, what we had said was they were seeing mystery airships, and it would be another ten years before an airship was capable of Know, doing a round trip seven mile course, but in this case, people all over the country, primarily California in the West and then here in New York, were seeing airships with gondolas, like zeppelins. Yes, yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah, and so that was that would be high tech for that time. Yes. Whereas a flying saucer is high tech for where we were living then.
0: Yeah, and a flaming chariot would have been high tech for a video.
2: And how do you explain that? Why would that? I mean, is there some clue there to what's going on? Pass. Pass on that. John Carpenter, any any uh, psychological Explanations here, or why would aliens choose to just stay one step ahead?
3: Well, that's that's for them to answer. (laughs) I don't think we can speak for them.
2: All right. (laughs) Let's go to the phone to Scott and fellow out there. Hi, Scott. Hi. I
3: I think you covered the area about. Parallels to false memory syndrome: how the virtual reality of the mind can be made to seem as real life. My
4: questions
5: initially for your guest comments were: What has blurred the distinction between the virtual reality of the mind
3: and the perceived reality in life? And two. Is regarding little gray men isn't the interpretation of the unknown quote-unquote other a strict of human attributes isn't that the result of gray man i bet he has arms and, and
4: legs
3: but he just has no features or nothing identifiably human Johnny Carpenter? yes um several comments real quick uh first of all um the, the encounters themselves have correlating evidence um we, we have many, many cases, over 2,000 documented with landing traces on the ground. The ground has been dehydrated, nothing grows for years, um, radiation. Uh, we have people with grass and mud in their bed, and they don't know how it got there. It's not on their floor, but it's appearing under their sheets on their feet, as if they've been somewhere. Uh, there's lots of things that take it well beyond uh, simply something psychological or, or fantasy. If it were just psychological, you wouldn't have these things tracked on radar. You wouldn't have the landing traces. You wouldn't have photos. You wouldn't have the videos, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's what's compelling to me—that it's beyond just something uh, like a false memory or or of that nature.
2: Well Why didn't somebody bring back a souvenir from the station, or you know, pick up an ashtray or something like that? Why? Well,
3: several people have tried, and they usually get caught <laughs> before they leave. Uh, I. I you know, they, they have tried at times, but so usually there's not much to pick up. Um, That's one of the
0: remarkable things, is that they describe the spaceship as being empty. There are no pictures from home. There's no decoration of any kind.
4: No bathrooms either.
0: Well, uh, kitchen, right.
4: Uh, yeah, I wanted to just say one thing about the false memory uh, aspect, and that is that in the false memory syndrome, you. you uh, report something that you and your investigator are reasonably familiar with. What you're supposed to report, namely right. child abuse by your uh, your uncle or whatever. Um, there have been a couple of studies done. The two that really come to mind are Bullard's study in 1987, uh, which is uh, called uh, "On Stolen Time," and then there's a longer version of it. Uh, and I think uh, John Miller's paper at the conference uh, in in the bullard paper he collected a lot of the stories and he found what to him and he's a folklore he just looked at them from the point of view of folklore without any regard to whether these stories are true or not he said these stories are unlike normal human tradition in that uh, there are elements of the story that there's no causal reason why a has to come before b but in fact it does and it's particular that the table exam comes before the tour of the ship mm. or the conference. Uh, he said in folkloric stories there's no reason, and in, in stories, if you go back and read stories of fairies, you will not see this kind of consistency. Mm. And he found uh, that the people did not report uh, the entrance to the craft. You know, it would be as if in The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy and her companions were going down the yellow brick road, and suddenly they were in audience with Oz. And you miss all the part about Emerald City and the spires and all that stuff. It just doesn't make a good story. It, it isn't like human oral tradition. And the point is that the patterns that he found, nobody, not the individuals expressing these things, not the investigators, knew that this was the pattern they were supposed to report or that they were supposed to lead their investigatees into prior to the appearance of his study. And yet what he studied was earlier reports.
2: How does one, and I'm not saying you in particular, I'm talking about myself and other people who are fascinated by this, how does one say, I'd love to study more of this, but how do I reconcile it? With breaking all the laws of physics I've known about space travel and time and space and things like
4: that? Well, um, I, I struggle with this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> first of all, I don't think it's surprising if, and I'm not saying these things are easy, I mean, I do not have any beliefs on this issue. The only belief that I have is that it's rather strange and interesting that these people are reporting all these stories, and I'd like to try to get to the bottom of it, right. um, But it certainly isn't impossible that that uh, extraterrestrial civilizations can send uh, small things to other planets, which then can manufacture bigger things. I think it can be if you have really good technology, it's easy to send something here. And perhaps the best uh, scientist who made this comment uh, along these lines was Enrico Fermi. When he was told about the possibility of extraterrestrial civilizations, he he thought a minute and said, well, why aren't they here? And what he meant was these other civilizations may well have a one- or two-billion-year lead on it, so that even if they sent out stuff at the speed of chemical rockets, it would have time to get from some other part of the Milky Way to here. Mm. Um, so you can explain that they're here. I can't explain how they walk through walls. I mean, that just seems totally impossible to me. And uh, it, it does contradict what I think of as the laws of the physics.
2: Let me ask you, John Carpenter, as someone who is a therapist and works with lots of people, hmm do you suspect that there are other therapists, they could be social workers, they could be psychiatrists, anybody, are encountering more cases of people who claim to have, to be abducted but don't recognize it as an abduction or, as, yes. or at least people feeling that way? Yes, I have a, a wonderful example real quick.
3: Uh, a psychologist called me from Virginia in the middle of the day in between sessions saying, my God, I read that pamphlet by the Roper organization and this case I've been working with fits it exactly because I've been trying to give this lady a diagnosis with multiple personality but it doesn't fit. She doesn't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on but I read the pamphlet. It fits like a glove. He says now I know what's going on with her. Now that's a good example of neither party having any desire or expectation that this is UFO related and yet they had a classic case point point. and luckily he made the connection and called.
2: So then what do you tell uh, the, the therapist to do?
3: <laughs> I tell him I had too much to say over the phone. I sent him a bunch of papers and helpful uh, suggestions.
4: There is a, a little ch- chapter in Alien Discussions about what kind of therapy has been used and what the reaction of the abductees to it is.
2: Now before we go, uh, Dave Pritchard, any, what kind of physical evidence, I only have about ten seconds left here, would make scientists more believing
4: Well, I I don't want to answer that. I I think people should go out and do research. I think we should. We found that these people are psychologically normal. We should uh, look at the abductees to see if they have to to really understand whether they have cataracts from the ultraviolet. Look at the scars. Really catalog that. Are they uh, are they abuse marks or are they something new? Uh, General overview. We haven't looked at the physical state of the experiencers. I think we should go find, we know that this thing has a tremendous hidden incidence in the general population. We should find out how big it really is and what, whether those people have the same experience that's been cataloged. I think there's work to be done, physical monitoring, not only of the abductees like electro and cardiograms and the brain scans, but you can put a TV up and try to get a picture of the UFO taking someone out of his house. Or, yeah. I don't know, but uh, I, think, uh, I, don't, I don't think we're going to solve this all problem right. in one we,
2: yeah, we are, and we aren't, and we're out of time. I'd like to thank my guest, John Carpenter, is a psychiatric therapist and clinical social worker in Springfield, Missouri. Dave Pritchard is a scientist at MIT and co-chair of the 1992 Alien Study Conference at MIT, and P.B. Bryan is a journalist and author of Coast Encounters of the Fourth Kind, published by Knopf. Thank you all for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you.
4: Thank
1: you to all. all right, with that, I'm going to let you guys go. Remember this Sunday we're finishing off the Allagash abductions? I had to take a bit of a different direction with it. Now again, recording the actual directions from the boat is a little hard and it gets challenging. And I gotta say, it doesn't come out the best, so that's been changed up. But I still think you guys will enjoy it. And we're gonna get into what happened to them on board the UFO. Alright guys, keep kicking it.